Mark 12, 35. I'm just going to go 35 through 37 and share a few words of what I think that the Lord, that what's happening with Jesus right here is 100% relevant in his culture because it was relevant then and it's completely, if not more relevant in our culture. So remember, Jesus has just been going through like a congressional trial. <laughs> like he's being hammered by the Herodians, the liberals, he's being hammered by the Pharisees, the conservatives, the, the, the teachers of the law, the lawyers, always lawyers, right? Just hammering them with questions. And Jesus is turning the tables now, right? This is days before a crucifixion, but he's turning the tables and now he's asking the questions. He's not answering them now. He's asking. And it says, verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of God? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how then can he be his son? This is like a question that these guys had been struggling with and were confused about and didn't know the answer to, and he's just sticking it to them. But I love this last line. The large crowd listened to him with delight. What was it that he said that made them so happy, that made the Pharisees so angry? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will um, be that light and lamp that you promised us that you would be. Your word is so true and so real. Lord, we read it and sometimes it inspires us and I gotta be honest, sometimes I read it and it kind of makes me mad because I didn't want that to be true, but... (laughs) but I serve you and you're the king, you're the God of all the universe and there are things that you might believe or say that I wouldn't necessarily know and so I think that we just humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to the truth this morning, the truth of your word and it's in your name that we pray, amen. I, uh, I was having a conversation, um, I went to a Christmas party on Friday night. But, by the way, for those keeping track at home, I have now worn a suit jacket four times in the last month. (laughs) Like, compared to none times in the previous 11 months. Like, I'm not a suit jacket guy. I respect suit jacket people. You know, Rick, I mean, you pull them off, man. You you look good, right? I I look like I'm uncomfortable and awkward. But anyway, I've got my suit jacket on, and we're at the party, and we're completely out of our leagues. We're just trying to act like we've been there. But one of my... uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, thinkers, is there, and we're sort of over in the corner and doing what you're not supposed to do at these parties, which is talk about politics. And, but I love this guy, and I love what he thinks, and he sort of had some opinions about who would win and who wouldn't win. And, but he said this. There's an interesting statement. He said, the thing that I'm just really confused about is we have 350 million people in this country. Is this the best we could come up with for the, like, these candidates we have like right in front of us, is this it? Like, that's it? <laughs> is there not somebody else that could? And he actually went on to say that he believes that it's uh, the, 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 not the de- democracy, not the republic, that, but the system that we have, the two-party system. Whatever. Because of that system, well, that is the best we could come up with because who's dumb enough to jump into that rodeo, right? You gotta be dumb to jump into that. So we're gonna lower the bar of expectations. And if I've offended any of your candidates, I'm not naming anyone in particular. They're all 
I don't know. <laughs> Remember, Southview is an amazing church, and Mark probably won't. <laughs> Mark doesn't probably talk about any of that. I don't know. Maybe he does. But was, it sort of was building on this conversation I'd been having on, on the boat for the last couple of weeks. And there was this common theme of people that I really respect that are really, really smart saying something along these lines of which I am so confused about what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is not true anymore. I don't, I'm just not even paying attention anymore. I don't know what to do. Is this the best we can do? And I was reading this passage here and it hit me that I think that the Pharisees, the, all these political whatever, they were actually looking at Jesus, okay? Keeping in mind, they're looking for a Messiah. They're looking for somebody to rescue them from Rome, from this helpless situation that they're in. And they, here's Jesus coming in on a donkey and thinking, is that the best we got? God's chosen people <laughs> parting the Red Sea? And we got that guy on a donkey? That's it? And I was thinking, you know, but something in this, what he said, maybe made the Pharisees mad because he wasn't the one that they wanted, but the people were hearing something of what he was saying. And I believe that what made them glad was this. Now, it might have been simply that they were just glad because he was sticking it to the politicians. And let's be honest, don't we all get a little bit of pleasure, right? We're like, oh man, I wish I could say that. So maybe there were, that was why it made them glad, but I don't 100% think that's what made them glad. What I think was making them glad was Jesus was bringing clarity into their confusion, into the chaos. He was bringing hope into the hopelessness. And he's just these two, two sentences, one verse, is bringing clarity, it's bringing hope, and it's bringing the plan to solve the problem, the real problem. And if somebody stood up here today and said, "Don't," if, if you had some clarity, if you had some hope, and you had a plan, man, that's what I'm looking for. And I think that what he said is the plan and the hope back then is the plan and the hope today. And I believe that with all my heart. He brought clarity into their confusion and into their chaos when he says that Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. He asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, by the way, when Jesus is bringing clarity to a situation, do you notice what Jesus does? He goes to the Bible. A lot of opinions these days floating around about the Bible, what the Bible is or the Bible isn't. But the Bible is the place that Jesus went to when he was trying to answer a question. He quoted the Bible. Almost every page of every gospel has Jesus quoting something from the Bible, and his Bible was the Old Testament. And that's important to, to know, because if you say you follow Jesus, if I'm a Christian, but I really am not a fan of the Bible, or I don't really know the Bible, or whether it may be, I don't know if it's inspired, I don't know. It, it, to say that you follow Jesus and you don't believe the Bible is not an intellectually tenable position because Jesus believed the Bible. Do you understand? So it's like, I can't go that far. So it's at best intellectually untenable. It's at worst disingenuous. And I just wanted you to think about that. That that's, he went to the Bible for clarity. And the clarity that he goes to is this prophecy that was confusing to them. He went to Psalm 110, the most quoted Psalm in the entire New Testament, at least 20 times. Theologians, you might know of more, but they went back to this one over and again because it spoke of the Messiah. 
And what it said was that he would be a king and that he would be a priest, that he would be David's Lord and he would be David's son. And none of that made sense to a Jewish believer. It was very confusing to them. How could he be his Lord and his son? And he's saying that he's both here. And Jesus is bringing clarity to them, saying that that's who I am, that I am not only the son of David. Why do your teachers of the law say that this is who he is? Because that's what the teachers of the law read in the Bible. It said he would be the son of David, but not just the son of David. It talks about him being a divine, that David's calling him Lord, that that is the clarity that he's bringing to him, that Jesus wouldn't be just a political ruler that we could vote in and save this. Because if they had saved Jesus, he, he could have saved Rome from Rome. At just that point, he would have saved a group of people for a period of time that would have been over with. That wasn't what he came to do. But in this time, these people were so confused and now they're like, oh, oh, now I get it. That he is gonna be both. That it isn't two different people. This is the same person. And I think this is important. I think it's important because they probably felt a little bit like we feel today, alienated from the process. My voice doesn't matter. My vote doesn't matter. I, I can't do anything at all, so I won't do anything. Alienated from it, and, and by the way, that isn't what it was supposed to be like. That was the internet was gonna save us from that. Anybody old enough to remember America Online? Come on, just give me your hand. So you guys don't know this, you kids, but it used to be when you got to go to the internet, you had, they would mail, did they mail them? Am I remembering that right? Uh, mail them. Jeremy, are you old enough to remember that? Fascinating. Um, well, because I didn't think you would be. So you get this little CD-ROM in the mail and you plug it into your Windows 95 desktop and it crashed it and, you know, we're like, ah. Um, and then Tom Hanks made a movie about it, right? You know, <laughs> Meg Ryan. Uh, you got mail. And by the way, can I tell the story? Um, we are broadcasting, right? We might take, we'll think about it. We might edit this. I'll just, we'll see. Um, well, because it's kind of embarrassing and I don't know who's in here right now. Um, it's Nashville. This is really risky what I'm about to do. Uh, a, a while back, I was helping um, plan a wedding for a friend uh, and a friend's daughter. And we were, I was going to do the wedding, and, and Shannon was with us. And it, was a, uh, and, and it was a family that had been, um, how shall we say, very successful. Uh, you know, large house. And, and you know how it is when you hang out with people, and maybe you're one of them with a large house and a lot, a lot of money. There's just random people that just are there at the house at all times. I don't know who they are. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you're like, who's that person? I don't know. So we're... Um, we're sitting around this table uh, planning a wedding and there's a couple of random people that I don't know who are and, and one of them is this nice young lady who's sitting uh, next to me uh, and she's uh, interning for a, a producer that you would know the name of and, and she knows that I'm a recovering artist manager so she's kind of asking me some questions about um, music business and so I'm saying, look, you're, you're young so here's the problem you're gonna get. You are, uh, you know how technology works. You know where this music is going for. And the problem is, is the people that are controlling the power structure at the top of you know, you know, promoters. All, man, those guys, they're out of touch with technology. They're all still using their AOL email addresses. The table got a little quiet because 
the girl that I said that to was um, Nikki Case, whose dad was Steve Case, the founder of America Online. Now, you got to be honest. Statistically speaking, the chances of that are, are not high. So anyway, I didn't really, I didn't get a Christmas card from the cases, but the point was that at that time, it was so embarrassing. My wife can't take me anywhere. I, I did a spit take at the Christmas party on Friday night. And I mean, I want to tell you right now that I'm not exaggerating when I say this was a spit take. Like, this guy made me laugh and I had just taken a drink and I spit drink all over him, all over the wife. And it was like... I'm not exaggerating, am I? And it wasn't even that funny. Like, that's the embarrassing. It was like... Like, it was a good one, but it wasn't that good. It didn't, I just, I was, I'm never getting back on that list again, so. We already weren't sure why they let us go to that one, but anyway, now, now we won't have to worry about it next year. So, um, but America Online happened, and back in that day, uh, Wired Magazine uh, had a cover story in 1997 talking about how the internet is now going to bring this new, it's called Birth of a Digital Age. You can still find it on Wired Magazine. And they were making all these amazing predictions about how now the internet is going to bring us together because it'll all be based on facts now. <laughs> I actually remember reading it and thinking, he's right, this is totally going to work out. And there was, a, there was a piece this week that was on BuzzFeed and it actually talked about that uh, article and the quotes from this piece. And I'll just read this one quote just for the sake of time, but this is what the author was saying. He's like 23 years later, like we're 22, whatever, we're looking back on the 22 years since this great prediction of this great digital nation that was going to save us and save our political. He says this, that looking back from the shaky edge of a new decade, it's clear that the past 10 years saw many Americans snap out of this dream, shaken awake by a brutal series of shocks and dislocations from the very changes that were supposed to, quote, create a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. But when they opened their eyes, they didn't see that a digital nation had been born only it had not set them free. They were being ruled by it. It hadn't tamed politics, it sent them berserk. And the writer would go on to say that the problem with it is that we now, because of what's happening online, we are being alienated, this is the language that the author uses, from each other and from our system. Alienated meaning that my voice doesn't count, my voice doesn't matter, my vote I might as well not even, because that is what they define alienation by. I don't know what's true anymore, I don't know what's false anymore, and so now I am alienated from this world system. And I don't know, I have to say I kind of get that. I'm a news junkie, and I don't know what's true anymore. And it's interesting because I, part of me wonders if the Lord has allowed this for us because it was once again an idea that we're now going to save ourselves. Political process wasn't going to do it, so now the internet's going to save us. 
And, and this author goes on to say, I wonder what will happen in the next 20 years. What, like what groups will form from this alienation and, and, and the danger of, of racism and nationalism and secularism and humanism all getting into their little things and the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's nothing new under the sun. But listen to what Jesus says if you feel alienated from that world. Ephesians 2.19, this is actually Paul speaking. He says, you are no longer in Christ strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are an alien on this planet. All this is doing is just telling you what was already true. You're never going to be. The thing that's happened right now is that we could, we could walk around and pretend like we weren't alienated, but the thing that the internet did for us is prove, oh no, my aunt is way crazier than I thought she was. Okay? Let me tell you what your aunt thinks about you. He's a nut job. They don't. But we weren't meant to have this much interaction with each other. <laughs> I don't think we were wired that way. But now we know that, that, that it didn't bring out the better angels of our nature. It brought out our sin nature. And there's a gift in this to know that we will never, this world system, this political system, whether it was Rome, whether it was Babylon, or whether it was United States of America, should Jesus tarry, this nation will one day be just like the nations we just spent walking around paying $10 to walk over their tomb. Because these nations will come and go, but Jesus bringing clarity into this was saying, no, 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 I am a priest, I'm a king, and I am the son of God, and I have come to bring hope into the hopelessness. Clarity right into the confusion. You Now you know that I'm gonna be both of these and here is the hope in this hopelessness that we might feel. David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, verse 36, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He is giving the picture, the truth, that Jesus is God. He is equal with him. He is a king Right, David would say, my son, he's going to be a king. And the thing is, is that what they wanted was him to be the Messiah that rode in with a horse and a sword and a can of whoop God and taking it all out. That was the Messiah they wanted, but it wasn't the Messiah they needed. He didn't come to reinvent their political system. He came to save them from the sin that caused the political systems. You don't have a political problem in this country. We have a sin problem in this country. And he came to save us from that. And when he goes on to talk about this, he says, and by the way, if you've got Psalm 10 open, you maybe could go there later. I just want to tell you that he says that I'm a king. He's going to be the king, King David's son, and he's also a priest. Those two things in the scripture are completely incongruent. They're a paradox. Nobody understood. They all, most of the Jews thought they were talking about two different people. And Jesus was saying, I'm actually the same one. And here's why this is beautiful. And here's why it matters. And here is the person, if we understand this, we can understand Jesus in a way uh, that makes the gospel become much more alive in us. A king, what does a king do? A king represents God to man. A priest represents man to God. These are incongruent goals. A priest would offer 
uh, medical care. You remember when Jesus healed the leper? What did he do? Go and present yourself to the priest. They were medical services they were providing. They provided mercy. They provided social services. They provided mercy and grace. A king, on the other hand, provided justice, enforcing the law. This is roughly analogous to if we've got law enforcement in here. I don't know if Adrian or Rick or who has any law enforcement. You have a job to enforce the law. Medical professionals, on the other hand, have the, the privilege. I mean, John, well, you've been doing saving lives for years, answering those phones. You have the job to save people's lives. These are not incongruent goals, but they're not the same goals. We're trying to serve the same people with a different goal. And that's what this is. A king and a priest were not meant to do this together. And you're never going to understand Jesus Christ unless you understand that in history, he alone stood as one who was both. Do you remember when I've told you about Moses, Exodus 33, when he came down from the mountain? And from the mountain, he said, God, I want to see your face. Do you remember this story, anyone? And what did God tell him? He said, go up there and I'm going to hide you in this rock. I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you. What a great picture of who God is, his goodness. But listen, this is in chapter 34, as this is unfolding, Verse six, write it down, go there later. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord. The so he's giving his name and his business card. Okay, this is the job description of God. If he had a business card, this would be who he was. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, the priest of God. Yet... He goes on to say, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. A priest and a king. Do you see the paradox? How could God be both? So good and so merciful to, to love you and to bring mercy to you. And so good and so kind as to not let any sin go unpunished. There's a paradox how does it work in our lives? And if we understand the gospel, that he is God, Yahweh, and he is compassionate and gracious, and that he is God, Jehovah Jireh, and he won't let sin go unpunished, there had to be a way, and the only way that we're gonna do it is in the work of Jesus. See, he didn't only bring hope into the hopelessness. He brought a plan to the problem. And it wasn't to ramrob a political candidate into the system. It was to wash your sins out of your system. And here's what he did. This is fascinating. And I'm going to close with this. The plan to solve the problem. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under your feet. You see, this is the promise that God is going to take the enemies and put them under their feet. Now, which doesn't that sound like on first pass, that God's going to go out there again, open up the can of whoop God, and destroy all of my enemies, take care of them all. And I'll stand there and just applaud them on, right? That sounds good, sounds fun, but the passage that he is quoting from is from Psalm 110. And if you are an astute reader, you notice that when he said in Psalm 110, under your feet, I will make them your footstool. Romans 5 tells you and me that I before Christ was an enemy of God. Romans 5.10. You, if you are not in Christ, you are at enmity. You are an enemy. 
with him. And he says, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies, until I make Darren, right? Until I make Ethan your footstool, which on first blush sounds like, well, that doesn't sound much better. But what is your, uh, anybody when you're little, did your dad make him, make you take his boots off at the end of the day? Right, that smells one you really can't ever get away. There is not amount of essential oils in your collection, Edie, that can undo <laughs> that. You can't diffuse that one. But, but what was dad doing? At the end of the day, you get the boots off, he puts his feet up on the recliner because the work is done. The Bible, four or five times in the Old Testament, First Chronicles 28, Isaiah, refers to the footstool of God as the Ark of the Covenant, where his presence would dwell. Do you, do you see what he's saying here? I'm, I'm not as good of a preacher as Tim, so I may not elicit spontaneous applause, but listen to me. Making his enemies his footstool is making you his dwelling place. Sit on this right hand until I make you my dwelling place, my footstool, so that I can sit down, put my feet up, because the work is done. Until I make you my dwelling place, my footstool. Now listen, if you're astute, and you might be, but God, what about this other one that punish the wicked? See, in Christ, I'm his footstool. But if I say I want to stand in front of God and do this on my own work, that I'm going to reject the work of Christ himself, Micah 4, 6 speaks of God trampling on the wicked. That there is a time of justice. There is a time when those sins will be punished and those punishments either going to be received in Christ or they'll be received in you. Those are your two options. I don't want you, I don't want any of us to reject Christ and say, I'm going to do this on my own and allow that to be the trampling of the sins of the wicked. A God that is good, a God that is perfect, a God that is just cannot let the sins of this world go unpunished. I walked through the streets of Nuremberg and I am thankful for a God of justice. And I'm thankful for a God of grace that would give it to all who would call upon his name, including you. And I would invite all of you, the story of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. That is the clarity into your confusion. You're not going to solve it on a political stage. You're going to solve it with the spirit in your own heart. The hope into the hopelessness is that he would come and dwell among you. And the plan is going to be that he is going to rescue you, make you his footstool. Because the work is done. His dwelling place here on earth those are your two choices and it's such a great gift that that's what Christmas allows. We live in a world where there's your truth, there's my truth. You know what? Christmas won't allow for that. Either Jesus is who he said he was or he wasn't. The cross won't tolerate your truth or my truth. And the resurrection proves it. He is the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And he has opened the door wide and invites us all to be in there, all to be his footstool.
to be the one that at the end of the day when Jesus is done, he puts up his feet in the dwelling place. Ephesians 1. So by the way, if you're uh, keeping score in Psalm 110, there's a priest in Melchizedek, but there's also suddenly a body count starts here. He's starting to open up the can of whoop God. Bodies stacking up in Psalm 110. Ephesians 1, when he speaks about the, the Christ and what's happening in us and the redemption in us, the very next verse after he says, I'll sit at your right hand again, he's quoting Psalm 110. And the very next verse is not about bodies piling up, it's about a body rising up, the body of Christ, you and I. That's the gift of Christmas. And I pray that that gift is yours Today. The gospel, the good news of Christ, he'll make you his footstool, his dwelling place. It's his will that none of you would perish, none of you. He wants to put you in the rock. What is Jesus? The rock of your salvation. And over you, he will cover you with his hand. And that hand has a hole in it, proof of his love for you. That's how good he is. That's how just he is. Stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. If you are here this morning and you have not called upon the name of the Lord to believe in the work that he did for you, you can do that right now. And if you have, I pray that you will be reminded and allow that gospel to grow even more inside of you, that it is not by works that you are saved, it is by his work. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Heavenly Father, we pray for your word to be a light, to be real, to be truth inside of us today. Lord, I pray that your words are supernatural and powerful inside of each of us. We're your dwelling place, your footstool, your rest. It speaks of rest. It speaks of relaxation. It doesn't speak of work and striving, but of a work that has been finished. That's the gift of God for us. And Father, for those maybe this morning that are like, oh, I don't know if I'm there or not, pray that you just speak to them right now and you right where you are, you just call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And then come see me. I want to pray with you too. I'll be hanging out here for a little bit. Father, we pray that be blessed, that Christmas for safe travels, for your spirit to be alive, for peace among the families, for us to be the peacemakers that you have for us. Thank you for the plan, for the hope, and for the clarity. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.